Well, welcome to uh, the Grassy Knoll for yet another segment, um, <laughs> the movable feast that is known as the Grassy Knoll. This is Viz, and with us today we have Alan Watt. Now, Alan is somebody who you might have heard on um, as, a, as a frequent guest on Jackie Petru's uh, Sweet Liberty. Uh, there is a listener to this show and that show out in Manitoba, a very sweet lady by the name of Lady O., who said uh, in an email, uh, you might want to check this gentleman out. And I did, and she was right. And I'm glad that he's with us today. Uh, from, uh, once again, the great white north, we have a guest, and that is Alan Watt. And, Alan, thanks for uh, visiting the Grassy Knoll. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's kind of hard to define exactly who you are. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to do two things. Um, one is I'm going to ask you an ice ice breaking question okay Uh and I just want your take on it cold and then we'll go into how you came about uh, the information that you have and the work that you've done Mm -hmm. do you have any original take on this shooting of a citizen down in uh, Miami's airport Uh, Miami Um, yeah are you familiar with what happened there uh, I wasn't no okay well um There was a gentleman, apparently, who is bipolar, had come in from a flight from Columbia, South America, and um, supposedly wasn't on his medication and flipped out after the plane touched down on its arrival in Miami. Uh, Well, subsequently, um, an air marshal shot him dead. Then they took the luggage out of the plane, spread it over the tarmac down in Miami, had bombs, sniffing dogs, check them all out, blew up some luggage and found no explosives. So, I mean, I'm just throwing that out because you know how you hear these stories and is that first take and what really is going on. And I just didn't know if you looked into that and whether or not um, it had affected you in any way, shape, or form. Um, No. uh, I mean, it's it's not unexpected because, in fact, it's to be expected now as as they really beef up uh, the security side. And the guys are getting trigger happy too, you know. So I'm not surprised at all. They had this whole deal in London airports for since the 70s, mm-hmm. and um, the, the the public they are now used to um, armored vehicles even patrolling inside the airports, and uh, special police units and the black outfits and so on. Oh, yeah. So yeah, this is not really to be unexpected. It's going to increase, in fact, obviously. You know, this may be just one of those organic occurrences. It just might be. I mean, we're all suspicious and speculative, and for good reason. But in this case, it may say more about <laughs> uh, people and pharmaceuticals than it does about any kind of uh, show of force by uh, uh, the air marshals or the military or whatever. Uh, be that as it may, I just want to throw that out there. But, Alan, mm-hmm. uh, I'm always curious, especially about people I've, I've not really... Uh, got a lot of information about yeah. as to their experiences and as you know with regard to their first look down the rabbit hole uh-huh. when did you start to realize that the world that we live in is very much a matrix around which there is the real world I, I always tell people and I, I'm not kidding I think I was born that way because I, I saw two realities coexisting simultaneously from really the beginning and uh, the, f- the first taste of it I got was, uh, this is in Scotland, of course, um, was simply walking in and out of, of friends' homes. And when you're a, a youngster, you can do that and ignore you, you know. You carry on as, as normal. 
and, and every home I went into, uh, everyone was arguing about the same things, which was to do with, at that time it was rent money and, and money for food. It wasn't for extras in those days. And, um, and yet I, I, I thought, well, how old is this system? Even then I asked those questions. And I thought, if, if Britain had an empire, how come I don't see anybody with the fruits of this empire? They all lived in London, which to me was a foreign, you know, country at that time. <laughs> it was so far away. And, um, and of course, the more I studied once I got into school and had access to the libraries, and then I had excellent um, reference libraries, too, from old towns there uh, with very old books, I realized that, that they were indeed changing history as time went on, and they were rubbing out uh, the truth with every publication of updated history books. And yet you could go into the, the, the reference libraries in Scotland and, um, and, and look over books written in the 1700s and get the real stuff that was happening at the time. Well, you make an excellent point because I've been the beneficiary of seeing information like that in the United States. And I think you're probably, uh, you were probably more endowed with that sort of thing and more freely uh, accessible to it uh, over there than, than here. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, the books of antiquity, uh, the statements that are made in the past, uh, are very much, um, as they say, is prologue to the future. And, uh, and in a lot of cases, and I think a lot of um, of the luminaries were really in Great Britain at the time of the United Kingdom, who had this plan. At least part of them showed it to us. And of course, I'm talking about Rhodes and, and, and uh, Milner's kindergarten. Yeah. They were very, very uh, vocal. Um, about what they wanted and they thought it the greatest thing. Yeah. Uh, this was not, I, th I don't think, as prevalent over here in the United States, especially contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, later on now, you know, and, and I, I'll talk to you about Carol Quigley later on, mm -hmm. but your remark about going back in and taking the looks, you know, yeah. at, at the, the information there, the writings of these elitist hands that said, this is what we're going to do, and they're doing it. Yes, oh yeah. Uh, can That's I, the astounding thing is that they did write about it right up openly up until the early 1900s because primarily those types of books were only, only read by each other themselves, their own peer group. Um, uh, and so uh, they had nothing to worry about the, the, the masses or, or the working people. So uh, they, they were quite open about where they were going. You know? When I tell people that the plan has been pretty much exposed from time to time, sometimes with a laugh down the sleeve, many times overtly, as we see with H.G. Wells and others, um, even George Bernard Shaw, yeah. uh, and they said, "Well, why, why would they do that?" Mm -hmm. Now, if you maybe you've had that question posed to you, maybe it's not an, an important question, but to these people who do not want to go where you're leading them, and you and they realize you've got some hard information, yeah. how would you answer them about why they would do that? Uh, it's a legality, I believe. I've come to the conclusion that these guys are so legal. It's a, and it's also a high Masonic ritual where you must mock the victim. And in other words, you, you inform them, and it's not your fault they don't quite understand what you mean, or they might think you mean something else, or they'll go into denial, but illegally they have told you where you're going. And I've noticed this over and over again. They always announce it somewhere. Uh, interesting you should say that. Are you familiar with uh, Rebecca Carley? I've heard the name, yeah. Well, she started the whole thing. We had an interview uh, years ago, and she said to us, uh, if, you're, if you want to know where things are going, all you have to do is watch the Sci-Fi Channel in Hollywood. Yeah. And she said something to the effect, and it's on my website, because this, this spurred off, 
a bit of an international gathering of pre-9-11 overt symbology in movies and in you know some uh, Murdoch slash Fox presentations, mm-hmm. like the Lone Gunman, uh, and believe it or not, The Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, so she said, in their sick Masonic minds, or in their sick Masonic code, if they tell you what they're going to do before they do it, it makes it okay. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, uh, I'd say that the lower Masons haven't a clue either, because Albert Pike said that they're no different from right. the general public. But the higher Masons definitely do. They talk in codes. Yeah. I just did an article uh, for a paper, and I, they, I put them up on the website, visigoth.com, mm-hmm. under Z-Files. And um, I did one today on a high-degree Freemasonry, and it's impact in the United States necessarily, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm only going to get hate mail from the Blue Lodge guys, mm-hmm. even though I did try to stipulate that the Blue Lodge has no idea, and you're right, uh, Pike stated it, Morals and Dogman elsewhere, mm-hmm. that they are porch members who are meant to be kept in the dark. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I, I want to do, if we could, an hour sometime on just this whole Masonry slash Egyptian sun god worship slash Masonry yeah. Babylon religion thing in another show. Mm-hmm. But getting back um, to what we had spoken about, about what it all comes down to. I mean, I think that, that this one world effort is, is partly spiritual, partly um, political, and partly uh, economic. Yeah. And I think we all agree now that it all comes down to economics. Yeah. And so let me, let me state that to you. Do you believe that what we're going to is what had been wanted since you know, maybe five centuries ago? Uh, even longer. Uh-huh. All right. Can you tell? It, it's, is it really to you a primarily economic system that they that they want to uh, implement uh, yes. globally? Yeah. How it's, far it's, back does it go, though, Alan? Well, uh, uh, there's um, the great work. They call it the great work was born about 4,000 BC. That's what they claim in high, higher Freemasonry, and also in Talmudic Judaism, uh, they also claim the same thing that that. that um, that was the beginning of, of this cycle, they call it. Uh, so now, today, it's about 6,000 years old. And this is the last phase of it. So, um, it's a very old plan. What they mean by the light coming down, or the plan coming down from heaven, what it meant was, um, that was when the light dawned, the beginning of the actual plan itself, or the great work. And uh, sure enough, that's when we see um, uh, the mm-hmm. heavy... Uh, um, outburst of merchandising and uh, gold trading in the, in the ancient Middle East um, from Sumer and all over the, that area uh, even though they weighed the, the, the gold at that time I don't think coinage came in until about 80 BC so they weighed it, uh, but they used that as a, a substitute for real wealth and that was the first con, the first great trick that was ever done, was to make people take that instead of food or or barter, you know. So the development of a currency, one which was metal, yeah. was probably the first move, is that correct? It was definitely the first move. Uh, um, the, the entire structural system, even then, which they built up very quickly, um, enabled them to create cities because then they could hire men. It's very hard to hire men if you have a ton of carrots or, or, <laughs> or vegetables. But if you have, you've trained them to accept money, then you can buy back their labor. Uh, with that money, you know, and, uh, and you create the first city, and then the city is artificial, it's the first artificial habitat for humans, and so they must use the money within the city because they don't produce anything themselves, everything comes into the city to support them, then you can recruit the army within the city, and once you have the army recruited, 
you can march out into the rural areas and uh, and dominate the people and, and force them too to use the same money system. And that's what, what went on and on and on. Did you ever? And, and eventually, of course, they created the first empires. And even the early empires of the Phoenicians were the first free trade zones. And that's what they called them, the free trade zones. Because wherever they went, they introduced the same standardized weighing of, uh, actually it was silver they really started with. And so they had the same weights and measures right up to the present day from the days of Sumer. It hasn't changed with the gram measurements and so on. Have you ever read a work called The Babylonian Woe? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, uh, am I to understand that perhaps either you agree with that information or uh, mind some information from that particular work? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of good information in there. And um, a, a lot of the facts were right on. It's, it's how they, they actually installed their own tyrants into countries. Um, and then the tyrant would start borrowing from the guys who put him in power, which were the bankers. And, and create the, the debt system for his country. Then you tax the people. You get them into slavery through taxation. All right, so so it, it's, it's a con job. It's all a magic act, as I say. Hmm. But it works very well, and this worked right up until the present day. All right, let me, let me recap if I got this straight. If there's a bit of a um, progression here, you can create the money mm-hmm. to stand for value, right? Yeah. And then you can build the city which is an artificial construct, so to speak. Yep. And then you can create the army. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm looking today at what has happened in the 20th century, and can we take it another step? And there may be more steps. Mm-hmm. But can we take another step and say, after you've got the money, mm-hmm. you've got the city, you've got the army, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere along the line you've also grabbed all means of information so that no one can shed light on what you're doing. Yeah, because you, you, what you do once you accept money, you can then tax the public and, and the taxation... The word tax is to labor. That's what it means. You, you, you tax yourself for okay. your labor. So they take it back from you. So many, so many energy units back from you uh, in the form of taxation. And so you are really working for them. In fact, today in, in the federal government, uh, I've been told by some people who work there, uh, they say that everyone works for the government. And they do, really, through all the different taxes that you pay. Sure, no matter who you work for, you work for the government. Yeah. And, of course, there's a whole issue here that we talk about in the United States. Maybe it's even true in Canada. I don't know where we look at ourselves as having, or well, some of us do anyway, mm-hmm. two citizenships. Mm-hmm. One is a resident of some geographical thing called the United States yeah. and as employees to the corporation known as the United States of America, Inc. Yeah. Um, going back to um, earlier times, mm-hmm. um, are you familiar? Have you ever read any of the work by Philip or Paul Collins? Uh, I think I have. It was a long time ago, yeah. Okay. No, it, it's only because, and, and they're going to be on uh, shortly also, mm-hmm. that they, they kind of created this continuum. I think that even went back to, to uh, the Canaanites, mm-hmm. through the Phoenicians, yeah. and through, um, I guess, um, the Venetian nobility. Yeah. And then later on, uh, I, you know, I, I guess, the Rothschilds and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, we, are you in agreement, or, or can you give us some kind of high point in a timeline, uh, with what particular uh, dynasties or um, or nations really work this scam to perfection? Well, I, I think the scam somehow had been done in, in what we call a previous time, an age, you might say, and uh, that's a convenient way of, of categorizing chunks of time. And uh, 
we know, for instance, and it used to be believed that Sumer was the first civilization mm-hmm. that was on the go maybe 5,000 BC, and, and, and yet it appeared uh, out of nowhere, uh, and it rapidly had all of its different specialized priesthoods who were bureaucrats mm-hmm. and judges and so on. Um, it, it didn't learn this by itself. It did not evolve that way. It, it had the information, I think, from a previous age, and then we go into all, all of the clues that there was a previous time when society had reached a particular height or, or zenith of power and technology um, and so some sciences as well. And for some reason, most of it was wiped out. But the knowledge of that, that system came through again and, and started off. And now they know, because they've dug up all the Sumerian cities, that there was another culture that pre-existed them, who were also uh, merchants, and uh, they were called uh, um, they called them the Hurrians or Harapians. So, so this goes way back. We don't know how many thousands and thousands of years uh, that this has been understood. But it does seem that the science, for some reason, was was partially lost at one point. They all talk about catastrophes on the earth and a new beginning. So I think it's probably a new beginning with some of them coming through with all of the knowledge of how to re-enslave the people. And that really is what the great work is, really. It's re-establishing something which they, they dimly refer to as their golden age, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to re-establish that. And I, I think that's what it's all about. I don't think they evolved anything in Egypt or Sumer. I, I think the, the these... Um, Probably it's true there were secret brotherhoods who came through from a previous age with the knowledge uh, and, and the sciences and knew exactly how to reestablish it, even in a, in a more primitive form. So it's almost like with every civilization or epoch, uh, <laughs> the same process takes over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it's interesting you mention this because I guess in times gone by, and I'm not necessarily going to ad- identify any religions, whether it was Sumerian or Babylonian or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, there w- but, but the priesthood was necessary in those days because they held the mojo and it was necessary to corrupt them first, was it not? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, corruption is never a difficult thing uh, if you understand human nature. And uh, I don't think there's any being or subject on the planet that's been more studied than, than the human being, uh, m- even many thousands of years ago. And the real eye-opener is to read uh, the writings of the Greek philosophers and, and then you realize that, that when they pulled Freud out the bag, Freud was just a... He, he was from kindergarten to what these guys understood <laughs> about human nature. Well, you know, we've had people on who have not, not so much intimated, but said straight out. Mm-hmm. They thought that our species was de-evolving. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? De-evolved, yeah, I know that's a popular theory. And I, I wouldn't say so as such. I do think... Okay. Uh, as I say, there probably was a catastrophe, and we, behind, we find in the writings of Tacitus, uh, who wrote for Nero, he was a historian for Nero, uh, that the Druids in, in, in Europe claimed, and Britain claimed, that uh, they had records of previous ages or catastrophes, and, and how they survived them. And uh, they lived inside high mountains, inside caves. You find that in the writings of the Greek historians, they had Mount Parnassus uh, in Greece. And um, even if you go to the Armenians that lived at the, the foot of Mount Ararat, mm-hmm. uh, the real ark is inside it. I mean, it's just tunnels, in other words. 
it's riddled with tunnels, that mountain. And that's where um, the, the high priests in those days survived the catastrophe. Uh, those that were left on the surface, I don't think all were wiped out, but after a few generations, um, they'd gone back to the wild, you might say. And uh, after a, a, an amount of time, these priests would pop back out the mountains with all the knowledge, and they came down with the knowledge from the mountains. That's the records of Sumer, in fact. They came out from inside the mountains. Perhaps if you theme for a third hour, if you'll be so good uh, in time to come to give us a three-parter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to really run that by about the inside world. I'm not necessarily, and I'll, you know, I'll say this preparatorily that I'm not so much a um, hollow earth guy, but I think there's a lot of stuff going on underneath. There always has been, even today, is underground bases, huge things uh, all over the world. Uh, every country's got them uh, for the elite to go in times of, of travel, and uh, that's no secret. You know. <laughs> I keep thinking it's useless feeders who live on the outside, right? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. All right, at this point, I, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to tell us about how people can access some of the information, especially the series that you write that you refer to as a companion set mm-hmm. imprint um, uh, to go along with um, the interviews you have done. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what it is and where people can find it and how much it is? And Yeah. Well, there's, there's three, three of them that writings that have... Uh, Cutting through, I call the series, and one, two, and three. Um, the first two mainly go into the to the ancient Masonic uh, and the, the modern Masonic codings, because every language we've ever known has had the, Maca- the Masonic codings written through them, and it's used all the time in our face, and we don't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I write the two in a gestalt type manner so that the, the, the reader doesn't go to sleep when he's reading and as I say that's a a western indoctrination technique we've all been programmed to fall asleep when we just soak up data you know and we don't retain it so I I write this in a fashion to to keep the person involved as he's writing uh, as he's reading and uh, that way he will uh, remember it Uh, the third one is to do with the money system going back for thousands of years and the, the, the writings about the money system from uh, Egyptian and Greek uh, writers, uh, how it came about, uh, who, who ran it, how they brought the countries down one after another through debt, and who was establishing it, and so on. And it's interesting that even the, the ancient writers like, like Aristotle, Aristotle, uh, who basically gave the Christian churches lead, they, they copied Aristotle's philosophies for centuries yet Aristotle who, who taught Alexander the Great um, to, be, to be a nice tyrant um, <laughs> uh, Aristotle himself was married to one of the richest bankers in the Middle East so they're always connected to even historians so these, these books anyway are $25 each and uh, you can get one or all of them if you send international postal order I use an international postal order from your post office. Yeah, don't be sending U.S. postal money orders, right? Yeah, they can't cash it outside the U.S. I, um, I learned the hard way about that, too. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. And uh, so the, the address is uh, address it to Alan Watt, which is W-A-T-T. And the address is Site 41, S-I-T-E mm-hmm. 41, Box 4, 
and the little town is called Astaire, like Fred Astaire, only with an E in front. Okay. So that's E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. And the postal code is P for Peter, 3 for the Trinity, E for Elizabeth, <laughs> 4, N for Nora, 1. <laughs> so that's P3E4N1. <laughs> and if anyone wants to phone me, they can call me at 705-695-0416. All right, and just clarify me on this. Each of the three... Uh, uh, books are twenty five cents. Uh, twenty five cents. Twenty five dollars a piece. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So the set of three seventy five, and that's U.S. currency. Will do all right. Yes. Oh, of course. Though, if we're going to do this, all right. Let me ask you this because um, I have exchanges with a lot of people on uh, above the forty eighth parallel, um, and they don't have a problem cashing at least my check. Uh, yeah. Can you take checks? Uh, it's harder for me. You could have yeah, a bank account yeah, number one. That's right. And you always have the problem with if it bounces. Yeah. yeah. For, for the international postal order, it's, like a, a, it's almost like a bank order. It's prepaid, so they don't have to yeah, hold it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, even though it might be a bad practice, you, you would take um, real-life Federal Reserve notes that are, are uh, <laughs> sent to the mail, would you not? Yeah, if, if they can get it through, it's best to wrap it in foil if they do. Yeah. But... Um, but yeah, once in a while that happens too. Well, I've had some zany experiences with an author out of uh, Calgary, mm-hmm. a fellow by the name of Charles Wilcox, um, who's written a book about um, the, the Catholic and the Vatican provocateuring during, you know, mainly around the world, Civil War time. Yeah. And uh, some of the stuff that I've gotten back from him regarding videotapes, mm-hmm. I don't know what they did with it. I mean, it's, it's scary. And I actually sent him back his own tapes because mm-hmm. he would do a lot of CBC taping. And you know, semi shows down. Uh-huh. I sent some, I sent him back. They came back to me. They ripped the crap out of it. It uh-huh. was gone for a month, yep. and sent back to me. And that's that's kind of unsettling. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, as uh, James Thurber would write, uh, your father does check your mail. Oh, they do. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, getting back to um, the task at hand, mm-hmm. and you said some interesting things. But you know, look, looking back at the money situation, mm-hmm. uh, William Still. I don't know. If that's a name you're familiar with. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. All right. Still said when he was on, and I referred to the the Babylonian woe and that whole money system, and he said, you know, either as uh, to supplant that notion or to expand on it or build on it. Uh He also said, it's you know, let's say it's not so much what you use as as value, Mm -hmm. but that the nation that has it is in charge Mm -hmm. of creating that. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, personally, I, 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 huh, I, I think that the, I don't care who runs money or who decides, or even if the people think initially that they're in charge of it, if they could possibly be, uh, they wouldn't be in charge of it for very long, because right. again, that's human nature. So I, I don't think in a moneyed system, uh, the general population can ever win out. It, it just can't happen. Well, in a situation as in the United States, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, yeah. we look at a day of ruin, uh, the day that they got through the Federal Reserve and then shortly afterward, uh, the income tax. Mm-hmm. When the United States government, I guess, performed an unconstitutional act by uh, extending to another entity that which belonged, uh, that activity that belonged to the government, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, and that is we allow the Federal Reserve to, to regulate the, the value of coin. Uh, and I don't know whether or not, while you were over uh, in Scotland or in your time now in Canada, did you ever see a, a, an event uh, tantamount to that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. All right. So did, did every nation more or less have this event where all <laughs> of a sudden mm-hmm. um, they became basically enslaved by a taxation uh, mechanism? Absolutely, yeah. Now, I, I, think, I think the income tax in Britain began uh, in 1917 as a temporary war tax. Ah, and that right. stayed there, of course, because nothing in that department is ever temporary. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There's no taking it back once it happens. No, no, no. So and of course, they're, they're liars anyway, because we're, we're see, we're, we're regarded as children. We're sheep. We are really right. the sheep, right. you know. And sheep aren't the brightest creatures on the planet. They're in fact of the stupidest. <laughs> and uh, the shepherd, the good shepherd, and they've always had a good shepherd in every age. You see. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't come into the to the to see the sheep and scare them. He comes in and he'll talk to them, and and some of them might even come up and, and, and he'll pat them. You know, they get used to him. He doesn't cull one of them and eat them in front of the rest, uh, or, or skin them and use the the, the, the clothing. Uh, he he he'll coax one out from from the rest out of sight and then kill it. And that's how you deal with sheep. You you never let them know what's really going on. And, and that's the reality of the, the, this parallel um, government we have, which is worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Maggie Thatcher, as I said, she um, gave speeches in the 90s, early 90s, across the, the, the world. And the titles of the speech uh, was, was under the title of the, the New World Order. And in Massey Hall in Toronto, uh, some novice reporter actually wrote it up in a weekend and a guest editor was off because it appeared there and most of the guests were CFR which is here it's, it's Canadian Institute of International Affairs right. Commonwealth country so um, but she said yeah, that the next coming war is going to be with the Middle East and fundamental Islam and uh, the, the, they'd all have to get prepared for it it was coming this is around 1991 you know mm-hmm. and uh so I knew then what was in the, on the cards. Well, you mentioned two dates, mm-hmm. and I can't let them go by or w- that we pass too far from them without addressing them right now. Uh-huh. That that um, the UK would come in with an income tax very close in time to us. Yeah, is not a coincidence. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's the world, isn't it? That's <laughs> the, that's that's our sheep world for us. You see, everything's always a coincidence. And you'd never get the truth out of the big boys. Um, what struck me too is, I mean, during the 60s and 70s and 80s in, in Britain, um, actually since the end of World War Two, massively off. And uh, carry on. Yep. And uh, the uh, the public were never told why uh, this was happening. It was it was absolute chaos, and the suicide rate was incredible because people had no future and that the government went on as usual and, and didn't say why, of course, because they don't tell the children. And um, some people suspected what was going on. I certainly did. And I noticed that the, the language, um, every year as delegations went over for the, for the common market, they called it at that time, mm-hmm. the economic market, um, they would have little phrases in there like um, 
uh, cementing closer ties. And, and this, this term, closer ties, came up over and over and over. Then I realized it's a legality, it's a legal term they're using here. They were binding the countries together financially. Um, and if you do it financially, economically, then you do it politically too. And sure enough, um, once they had united uh, the countries together through deception, it, it was released only about a year and a half ago from the British Parliament that, that they had, they read the whole report out that was printed in 1948. That's when they started this deal. Mm -hmm. And they said that the public must never be allowed to know the real intent and goal of, of, of this agenda until it is completed. So here you are. This is rather typical. Forty odd, fifty years after the event, you get told the truth. Well, you know, I go looking back from reading whatever, and they they cite uh, as I asked you in fact the other day about uh, where did you read that? And you said October 30th, Boston Globe, I think it was. You. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, thank goodness I can access that stuff. And um, but. Even when it's electronic in databases such as LexisNexis, mm -hmm. that may someday disappear, if you know what I mean, yes. and go down the memory hole. Mm -hmm. However, thank goodness for microfiche and, fish and film and all that other stuff where you can go back and, and look in past, like, say, foreign affairs. Yeah. And then you realize after World War II, there was a great deal of rhetoric about New World Order and stuff. Now, of course, it wasn't in Life magazine or Look magazine, yeah. but these characters were talking about it, and, and you have mentioned it before on other programs where... The think tanks are raised up to create basically policy for all of us globally. Yeah. Um, and, and I go back looking in um, the 1970s, and I can't remember the author of it, but it was in Foreign Affairs, and the title of it was The Hard Road to a New, a New World Order. Yeah. Now, in the 70s, I wasn't paying attention, but when you go back and you look at that, it's like, holy mackerel. Mm -hmm. But another thing, too, you know, you say Thatcher was talking about the New World Order in, in 1991, mm -hmm. and by now it's probably known by many. Yeah. That, that Daddy Bush's first mention of the New World Order in the United States was 9-11, 1991. That's right. And, and again, we go back to this wonderful numerology that, that the Freemasonry holds so dear, don't we? Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I'm also thinking about another thing that in, in the past show. We, had, we did a show on a lecture given by an individual by the name of Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter mm -hmm. from the Woodrow Wilson School of Government in Princeton. And she wrote a book, it's out there now on Amazon, but she, she did a lecture on the New World Order. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you how you feel about this. I mean, because here's what she said. The nation state is alive and well, but it's disaggregating. And what we really need now are international judiciary, legislative, and regulatory agencies. Mm -hmm. So don't you find, Alan, mm -hmm. that it's kind of a doublespeak? The nation yeah, it's state, always a doublespeak. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because in the question and answer period, some light bulb in the audience, and this was given in, in Austin at the University of Texas Law School, mm -hmm. and the guy, the guy called her out on it. Yeah. And she kind of, you know, <coughs> well, uh, yeah, and she said, well, it's only in the thinking stage. Mm -hmm. Nothing's firm yet. It's as if to say, as long as it's a concept, it doesn't really matter. And it's like, well, it's not going to stay a concept forever. Yeah. So what are you telling me, folks? I mean, it's harmless because you're thinking about it? Yeah. And what you always find too is when there's, when there's someone like 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 uh, she was talking about it at that time, whenever they announce it to the public, everything they're talking about is already obsolete. They've gone much much further. Always, mm -hmm. always. They're never just going to do something. No, They've already it, done that stage. Right. Of it, you know. And they just soften up the public with a little PR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like it's like some woman said. I, I remember hearing on some show about all the gadgetry and and. Uh, 
uh, weapons that they have, a lot of bulletless weapons, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And she said, listen, if you hear about it now, it was an R&D 50 years ago. Yes. Uh-huh. And, that's, and of course, we've talked about, you know, are there any such thing as really science fiction writers, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing about this, and I want to go back into a little bit of antiquity again with you, and that is um, I mentioned a white paper that somehow just didn't get on the hill and, and the mainstream news just didn't pick it up, Alan. Mm-hmm. And it's called Building a North American Community. And the three um, entities uh, that have contributed to this white paper are the Council on Foreign Relations, the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. Does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Consejo Mexicano de Asuntos Internacionales. Mm-hmm. So these characters who aren't elected, yep. who knows from under what rock or woodwork they come. Mm-hmm. And they're making policy. And while they claim that they're not attached to a government within the body of this work, it says, but we want to see this implemented, implemented by like 2010. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you're not attached to the government, who's going to implement what you guys are cooking up? Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. You see, the governments are just a front. <laughs> they're, all, they're just a front. They're a paper tiger. What, why, why were we given governments? What was the deal with that? Was that really for self-rule or was that for uh, guys um, well, be, being preoccupied? Well, out in, in the 1700s, there was, that was an, an age in, in Europe of rebellion. Uh, the public had had enough and there were so, so many rebellions going on. So they, they, they began the Chartist movement to give, and of course they gave the leaders to, to the Chartist movement saying we're going to get rights for the public. Mm-hmm. And out of that came your so-called de- democratic system. Uh, prior to that it was only nobility who had votes in anything. And, uh, and eventually, uh, about World War I again, the British public actually got the vote, the general working public. And um, so, so what they found, if, they, if the public thought they could vote See, we don't vote people in, we vote the, the present bunch out. We're so sick of them, that's how it works. And, and so they, they found that if it gives you the chance that of someone new every four or five years, then you don't have a revolution. That that's how this game works. So as we see in the United States right now, and I think this is probably, I mean, it's not that I'm that parochial or myopic about the United States, but I think that, that people have to be looking at us for all that we supposedly had and, and are and were or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're being given the biggest bag of dog manure, mm-hmm. and we don't get it. No, you don't get it, no. And so, he, so what I'm saying to I was on a show today. I called in as, you know, as a caller, and I said to this Democratic show, and I, and I like the guys, and they're listening to some 9-11 stuff, but I'm saying you do a disservice. Don't you understand? The Democrats cannot save the country. Yeah. You guys, when we have a regime change, just like you said, or we're going to have, let's say Hillary comes in, right? Uh-huh. And then the Democrats, even though she's continuing with the plan, mm-hmm. the Democrats will support that which they uh, uh, castigated when the Republicans were doing it. Mm-hmm. So everybody's sitting there saying that the good old Republicans are dead. We rule the world. We'll do it right. And, and, and they'll do the same thing that, 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 uh, that Shrub did, yeah. that Clinton did, that Daddy Bush did, that Reagan did, that Carter did. Yes. And, yeah. and that never changes. Oh, it's... it's uh, there's only one agenda, and it goes forward regardless of, of what front person's in power or, or appears to be in power. Uh, the, the bureaucracies really have bypassed the politicians since they, they, they set up the League of Nations. And George Orwell, not George Orwell, but uh, it was H.G. Wells, talked about that mm-hmm. when it happened uh, right after World War One. He said, they said, really, he says the politicians are now irrelevant because that the higher level um, bureaucracies can, can uh, uh, converse straight with the, their counterparts at the League of Nations. Now it's the United Nations. They don't have to even go through the politicians. 
And those guys, remember, all these bureaucrats, the federal ones, are unelected. And they're yeah. also hereditary positions. Again, that's mm -hmm. another thing people don't realize, that you have generations of intergenerational bureaucrats uh, who all are brought up with a silver spoon in their mouth. They all live together, marry each other, and, uh, and they know what their agenda is in those bureaucracies. They, they don't care who's, who's in, apparently in power, you know. Well, t all right, my feeling is this, and, and please, please respond. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that Europe, the old world, may have been the old world, but yep. they were the strong world. And even though the United States uh, became the new world, yep. uh, our freedom was only short-lived, and that really, to this very day, because Europe was out there the first and and captured the wealth that really they still run the show and only let I think the United States think it was the top dog because they were very very willing and generous mm -hmm. about using our best blood to go fight European wars and other things yes uh -huh. so they made us feel like we were king yeah and then they said okay and bring your troops over and then yeah to me you know I'm, saying, I'm not talking about British people right mm -hmm. And the Brits just, like, kind of sat back in a rocking chair and let the Yanks go at it. Yeah, I, I think it was Kipling that, that was in on that changeover uh, because um, th there was a poem written about the white man's burden and mm -hmm. we passed the torch on to you. And that was written in red, uh, eventually, on the, on the U.S. Senate floor uh, by the author. So that was a Masonic meeting on that floor, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word Senate is an Egyptian word. It, it, it means a chessboard. Mm. So uh, when you address that from another country at a Senate level, you are a high-degreed Mason. And so that also was embraced by the Roman Empire, was it not? Yes, it was. Huh? Oh. So, you, so it's, uh, it's a game, you see, and, and uh, only the boys on that board, that level, understand the game. And, um, and that's what he said, we'll pass the torch on to you, because... They'd exhausted the British taxpayers. They, they, had, they had taken them through an industrial <laughs> revolution where they couldn't even buy the shoes that they were making, you know, as, as Franklin said. And, um, and they'd been taxed to the hilt. They'd been sent off for <laughs> perpetual wars ever since the Rothschilds uh, took over the Bank of England. And uh, Britain was exhausted after World War I. So they, they, they had to pass it on to the up-and-coming one, the, the new champion, you see under a better cover of, of you know, freedom, etc. Mm -hmm. a, a, a country with not a long history, Britain's history was, no one would trust London ever again, <laughs> or, or Paris, or any of those old countries. Yeah. So uh, they, they created the United States to take it over, and that's, that's what it did, the, the shining knight and, and the white horse. And that was the guys that has it's come up to the present mm -hmm. time, but we're doing it to make the world safe for democracy. You know. uh, a quick sidebar question, because we are in that season uh, of mm -hmm. Happy Saturnalia, or Christmas, or Xmas, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, when you if you could give me a, a response to this, mm -hmm. and that is, would, would I be correct uh, in assuming, and this is not my idea, uh, Harry, my old partner, and I talk about this, but did Dickens kind of give an elbow and a ribs to the Rothschilds with something like, um, the you know, the, the Christmas story? Yeah, in a sense he did. Scrooge However, there's another side to the Rothschilds that's never discussed. Okay. And and that is, now, the, the, the traditional story that people love to, to use is that the, that the Rothschild sons were sent off to different countries and, and, and just took over the, the central banks by 
cunning and good luck, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's the dumb thing for anyone to believe this. this, this. Um, the, the British aristocracy and nobility came from Norman descent, and they'd already run Britain for over a thousand years, a thousand and a half mm-hmm. years, or at least one thousand years. So anyway, they had their own hit teams and assassins and so on. They allowed Rothschild to become the manager of that bank. Okay. Because they could have bumped them off at any time, and they would have if it was all real and they truly were enemies, because they were not going to let anybody come in and take over their money. Well, that's almost like a Chicago gangland scenario from the 20s here, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you move into somebody's territory, you don't give it up, you're going to pay. You're going to pay. And this lone guy, this fat little guy walking around the, the narrow streets of London, uh, and he was left unscathed, that tells you that, that he, no, he was protected by the nobility. Oh, is that old Anshel Bauer? Yeah, well, Anshel was the, the father. Okay, and this was what, Nathan? Yeah, Nathan Rothschild. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that—that's the thing. I mean, he was left alone. I think he was brought in for for his purpose by the nobility and the aristocracy. I want to remind everybody that uh, you're listening to the Grassy you Knoll. Know, this is Viz with Alan Watt. Uh, Alan has a uh, cutting through series, uh, three parts. Uh, again, would you tell us which uh, of the three parts relates to what particular uh, topic? Yeah. Well, the first two, one and two, go through. Uh, Freemasonry and a, and a few things which I've never really ever thought about. Uh, I go through the how they literally created the English language to contain all of their codings, and and they created it in the 1500s. And Francis Bacon talked about the creation of the English language. And uh, the, the 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 third one goes goes into the money system, the control um, technique of, of creating debt in countries and then putting your own boys in charge of those countries to manage the debt under the guise of uh, governments and so on. But, um, yeah, they're, they're $25 each, and uh, definitely worth a read. Yeah. It's different from what you've seen before. And, and um, I'll give my address again. It's sure. Alan Watt, W-A-T-T, Site 41, Site 41, Box 4, Esther, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada, and the postal code is P for Peter, 3, E for Elizabeth, 4, N for Nora, 1. And people can call me at 705-695-0416. And if what they is, have any questions. And what is key here with regard to um, the monetary situation is that you send international postal money orders, correct? That's right. Uh, All right. Yeah, yeah, from your post office. Uh, and, uh, and, and those yanks that are, uh, are willing to live dangerously, you can send them Federal Reserve notes and mm-hmm. put it in tin foil and send it on up there. That's right. Uh, I'm just curious if you don't mind me asking. I'm not really familiar where Astaire is. Uh, where are you? What, what's in the closest city you're uh, located in? That's it's near Sudbury. Okay, okay. Yeah. Near Sudbury, North Ontario. Well, not really north, it's midway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wayne Gretzky owns a, a hockey team there, but <laughs> that's another uh-huh. thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, going back to um, to the history, I'm going to ask you one too. Uh, there was a, there was an organization I found that had l- very little light. Shown on it in England, it was a it was an, an Anglo-American relationship. Mm-hmm. Quigley gave up a lot 
about Rhodes and Milner, mm-hmm. but said nothing about the Pilgrim Society. Are you familiar with that at all? Yes, yeah. What is the deal with the Pilgrim Society? I mean, well, there's mo- a long connection here with this uh, mystery bunch and mystery religion uh, and the United States, uh, going back to the foundation of, of the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, there's even a play on the word Puritan, because many of the Puritans, when you really go into it, so had a little bit more than religion, and uh, they were extremely wealthy. Uh, they had their own charter of democracy, by the way. It was democracy they had on their ship. They had put together themselves, supposedly. And um, they even had a, a structural system where they would divvy up the land uh, when they landed and run it in a communal fashion, almost like a mini-government, a mini-democracy. And they had scandals which broke out after the, 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 the headman died. I saw a book from the 1800s recently, in fact, an old bookstore, going into this and how he, <laughs> he he'd legally and, and through, through devious means managed to, to take money from, from so many of them and, and property without them even knowing, but he did it all through uh, various legal means. <laughs> but um, So I wasn't surprised there. Um, but yeah, there's been a, a tie between the mystery of religions, you might say, and the ones who were who claimed to be pure, you know. Well, well Charles Savoy wrote about this. It's the first time I encountered it, and he did a three-part series on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he referenced the books um, which he read, mm-hmm. and I got them through interlibrary loan. Uh, two of them were written by a member. The third and the latest was written probably as an authorized uh, biography, if you will. Mm-hmm. But they have in the back all the meetings that they have. And usually they you know, they have a guest and who that should be, and it was Kissinger and this one and that one, uh-huh. and then all, and they tell you where it was and all, but then there's some that just says the inn of the middle court, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what's the inn of the middle court? Yep. And I wonder, you know, hmm, that sounds interesting, and they say not much about it, no, no, uh, no guests of honor or anything, just mm-hmm. inn of the middle court. That's right. And and this reflects back to what you said about the city of London. Mm-hmm. To me. If I look around at probably the two biggest networks I think that that run the show, the city of London is that to be distinguished from London? Uh, it is really, yeah. It's got its own charter. Uh-huh. And also, I think the Vatican. But the city of London—that's a very interesting situation, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's almost a, uh, yes, a sovereign, really, really a sovereign state within a country. As is the Vatican, true? Yeah. Uh, and do we think that? And are we right in assuming that the royals never really did fade away? They may have stepped back and, like you said, all right, let's have this government thing going. Go ahead, guys. I'll see you later on. Mm-hmm. But are they poised in, in, in most of the nations of Europe um, to step up one day and um, and wish the uh, the reinstitution of this time a new feudalism? Um, it's already happened in a, in a sense. The, the, the new feudalism, as Carl Quigley said, would be based... The new feudal overlords would be multi- and international corporations who would then be dictating policy. Well, they are, as we know. They are, through, because they all have front groups um, of NGOs, and, and they fund these front groups who then put pressure, or, or the apparent pressure for public consumption, onto the government to then quite happily sign the, the, the various laws that they want enacted. So the, the international corporations 
um, are already doing this. They have been doing it for many years, in fact. Um, and Carl, Carl Quigley was, was quite explicit about that, that that would be the new form. Again, an economic tyranny run by the overlords, which are uh, international corporations. Uh, to be honest with you, I really don't think we have separate international corporations. That's how far I go with all of this. I, I think I think they're all one anyway. Well, I agree, but but can you be a little bit more explicit in developing what you've just said? Um, when you talk about international corporations as being all one, mm-hmm. can you give us some kind of example? Of it's common sense. I'll, I always think of Albert Pike, who gives you the laws and the rules of, of the, this Masonic game. And he said that a, a person who will not use their own powers of reason, not the media's or what you're told, but your own powers of reason, he said, uh, is nothing more than uh, meat on the table and a beast of burden by choice and consent. And so my reason tells me that uh, if you had two or three major car corporations, for an example, and the CEO uh, can leave one and go to another, a supposed competitor, and take all of the, of the future plans with them, obviously, uh, then you'd have chaos in those markets. And, and you could never allow them to even leave because those guys make business plans uh, for 50 or 100 years ahead in, in investments. Well, well so how on earth could the top man leave knowing all this stuff and go to a competitor um, it would fall apart. It would mm-hmm. be, there'd be warfare amongst them. So in a sense, we have a global monopoly. Yes, we have it okay. right now. And, and that, that's what I've known for many years, that really everything is one, as they are, they're always telling us. They're all one. Mm-hmm. And it's one system. Um, you don't get up to the top in anything because you work hard and, and you're lucky and you get the breaks. You, you only get up to the top if they open the door and let you in. That's how the real system works. That's how the real system works. And it's like Bill Gates. I mean, he deals with the computer industry, so he's the, the Masonic gatekeeper mm-hmm. of information. <laughs> yes. um, you have your, 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 your Apple computers. Apple is what? That's knowledge, the tree of knowledge, you see. Mm-hmm. It takes the Apple. The best Apple is a Macintosh. You know, I mean, this is all Masonic, you know, wording. Oh, you mean it's just not a coincidence, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> it, 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 it's playing jokes with us all the time. Yeah. And, and one other thing I have to tell you, we're going to probably run out of time, and I want to run by your information again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I know I can't see an email. I know what your situation is. But in that Pilgrim, one of the three Pilgrim books, mm-hmm. you would love it. There's Harry Truman with a grin from ear to ear. As you know, Harry Truman could smile. Yeah. And he's glad-handing somebody from the Pilgrim Society. It was not somebody like a, a king or a prince or whatever, but... And, and the Masonic grip is just so in your face. It's like the joke is on us, guys. You know what I mean? Uh, so, I mean, you'd love it. i got to somehow, someway get you that facsimile. I, I keep threatening to put up a whole series of what we would call They Know the Handshake yeah. up on the site. We've been talking to Alan Watt out of Canada, um, and he's a, a frequent uh, guest on Jackie Petru's Sweet Liberty and a couple other places. And you can look around and do a search on him. You'll find out... Um, what he's about and hear uh, other interviews he's given. We hope he'll come back for uh, two more with us. He has written a series called The Cutting Through Series. It's three parts. It is um, accessible for $25 a piece for each of the titles, $75 obviously for the whole ball of wax. And you can write him, Alan Watt, that's W-A-T-T, at site 
41, that's S-I-T-E, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, Ontario, that is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Estaire, Ontario, and their Canadian zip is P is in Peter, 3, E is in Elizabeth, I'll never forget that, and is it, uh, is it 4, yep. N, 1, that's correct. Well, I can read my own handwriting, Alan. That's, that's good. That's outstanding. I'm, I'm getting better all the time. Uh, yeah, we're going to leave you now. And um, if you would, I would ask you if you could. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll cut you free, but if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a call back. We can make some arrangements for, for future shows. Yeah. Um, I hope you've enjoyed your time here. Obviously, uh, we've. You know, I, I'm very, very uh, encouraged to have um, heard so much about you, and that the fact is that uh, you're the real deal. And um, uh, we thank you, and of course, we'd like to have you come on again. This is Alan Watt. I'm Biz. This is the Grassy Knoll, and we'll catch you uh, in another week. Good night. Good night.